Blog Talk Radio. Dogs eating a banana. <laughs> mm. Nothing like a last second breakfast before the show. This was necessary. Needed some nutrients so I could fire out a B show for you guys. Mm. Tremendous. Okay. We're going to talk about Attorney General William Barr. He testified in front of Congress. The soap opera continues. Um, Him and Mueller are not exactly seeing eye to eye. What does this mean, if anything? We'll dive into that. Um, Hansi Uncle Joseph, uh, according to some polls, is now leading the race by about 496 percentage points. (laughs) We'll talk about that. Um, Bernie Sanders is calling out and challenging the other candidates in the presidential race in very direct ways, and I am extremely here for it, and I love it. Um, We're going to talk about what's happening in Venezuela. We're going to talk about uh, corrupt Joe Crowley trying to throw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the left-wing movement under the bus. Mm. Forget about it. Um... I'm actually really excited for the show because the array of stories is uh, is vast and interesting. I even go after Alyssa Milano today. What? <laughs> God damn it. I said her name, and now all I can think about is Milano cookies. Oh, those are so good. Fuck. God damn it. Okay. If you can't tell, I guess I'm kind of hungry here. Let's get it started. I got this video is a little bit long, but it's going to be worth every second.
So Attorney General Barr testified in front of Congress on the issue of the Mueller report. Um, it, he went for hours and hours and hours and hours, and of course this was a political soap opera, and Twitter was just lit on fire over it. Um, so I want to show you some highlights here. These are parts that I thought were incredibly interesting for a variety of reasons. So let's watch, and then we'll come back and discuss. As you know, volume two uh, in, of his report uh, dealt with obstruction, and the special counsel considered whether certain actions of the president could amount to obstruction. He decided not to reach a conclusion. Instead, the report recounts 10 episodes and discusses potential legal theories for connecting the president's actions to elements of obstruction offenses. Now, we first heard that the special counsel's decision not to decide the obstruction issue at, a meet, uh, at the March 5th meeting when he came over to the department, and we were frankly surprised that, that they were not going to reach a decision on obstruction. We asked them a lot about the reasoning behind this and the basis for this. Special Counsel Mueller stated three times to us in that meeting, in response to our questioning, that he emphatically was not saying that but for the OLC opinion, he would have found obstruction. He said that in the future, the facts of a case against the President might be such that a Special Counsel would recommend abandoning the OLC opinion, but this is not such a case. We did not understand exactly why the special counsel was not reaching a decision. And when we pressed him on it, he said that his team was still formulating uh, the explanation. When the report came in on the 22nd and we saw it was going to take a great deal of time to get it out to the public, uh, I made the determination that we had to put out some information about the bottom line. The body politic was in a high state of agitation. There was massive interest in learning what the bottom line results of uh, Bob Mueller's investigation was, particularly as to collusion. Former government officials were confident, confidently predicting that the president and members of his family were going to be indicted. There were people suggesting that if it took any time to turn around the report and get it out, it would mean that the president uh, was in legal jeopardy. Uh, so I didn't feel that uh, it was in the public interest to allow this to go on for several weeks without saying anything. And so I decided to simply state what the bottom line conclusions were, which is what the department normally does, make it binary determination. Is there a crime or isn't there a crime? So we released that. I, I offered... Uh, Bob Mueller the opportunity to review that letter before it went out, and he declined. Uh, on Thursday morning, I, rece I received, it probably was received at the department Wednesday night or evening, but on Thursday morning, I received a letter from Bob, the letter that's just been put into the record. And I called Bob and said, so, you know, what's the issue here? Are you and I asked him if he was suggesting that the March 24th letter was inaccurate, and he said no, but that the press reporting had been inaccurate, and that the press was reading too much into it. And I asked him, you know, specifically what his concern was, 
and he said that his concern focused on his explanation of why he did not reach a conclusion on obstruction, and he wanted more put out on that issue. He wanted, he argued for putting out summaries of each volume, the executive summaries that had been written by his office, and if not that, then other material that focused on the issue of why he didn't reach the obstruction question. But he was very clear with me that he was not suggesting that we had misrepresented his report. I told Bob that I was not interested in putting out summaries, and I wasn't going to put out the report piecemeal. I wanted to get the whole report out, and I thought summaries by very definition, regardless of who prepared them, would be under-inclusive, and we'd have sort of a series of different debates and public discord over each tranche of information that went out, and I wanted to get everything out at once, and we should start working on that. And so the following day, I put out a letter explaining the process we were following and stressing that the March 24th letter was not a summary of the report, but a statement of the principal conclusions, and that people would be able to see Bob Mueller's entire thinking when the report was made public. So I'll end my statement there, Mr. Chairman, and glad to take any questions. Thank you very much. Given the fact that a lot of people told me he should be fired, did you find that to be a persuasive act of obstructing justice? No. I think even the report, at the end of the day, came to the conclusion, if you read the analysis, that a reason that loomed large there for his termination was his refusal to tell the public what he was privately telling the president, which was that the president was not under investigation. As to where we go forward, as to how we go forward, would you recommend that this committee and every other committee of Congress do our best to harden our infrastructure against future attacks? Absolutely, yes. Do you think Russia is still up to it? Yes. Do you think other countries may get involved in our elections in 2020? Yes. So you would support an effort by Congress working with the administration to harden our electoral structure? Yes. Is that one of the takeaways of the Mueller report? Yes. Just to finish this, but you still have a situation where a president essentially tries to change the lawyer's account in order to prevent further criticism of himself. Well, that's not a crime. So you can, in this situation, instill someone to lie? No, it has to be, well, to be obstruction of justice, the lie has to be tied to impairing the evidence in a particular proceeding. McGahn had already given his evidence, and I think it would be plausible that the purpose of McGahn memorializing what the president was asking was to make the record that the president never directed him to fire. And there is a distinction between saying to someone, go fire him, go fire Mueller, and saying, have him removed based on conflict. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll take the case under advisement.
And what would they, they have different results. What would that conflict be? Well, the, the difference between them is if you move someone for a conflict of interest, then there would be a, another, presumably another person appointed. That last part there was absolutely hilarious. Like, really, man? That's the argument you're going to make? Oh, he didn't say fire him. He said have him removed. There is no difference. That is basically saying, like, get rid of him. Fire him. But that when you're dealing with somebody as dumb as Donald Trump, Barr's only out is to, like, split hairs and make ridiculous arguments and try to hit everybody with the old school Bill Clinton. Uh, depends what the meaning of is is. What? <laughs> like, that's going to be your argument? So, um... I don't understand why he wouldn't just say, you know, firing Mueller obviously would have been obstruction, um, but he didn't end up doing it. And for whatever the reason, whether he was blocked from doing it or he had a change of heart, that's irrelevant. Since he didn't do it, it's not obstruction. Like, that would have been a better point to make. But the argument of like, no, 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 even if he had fired him, it wouldn't have been obstruction. Why? Well, presumably because... Mueller would have been replaced by somebody. Yeah, but then we all know Donald Trump would have wanted whoever's replacing Mueller to be fired too. I mean, this isn't like, that's obvious to me. Now, if on the broader question of obstruction, again, I think the main issue and why it wasn't like an open and shut case has more to do with intent than anything else. So in other words, it certainly appears like Donald Trump obstructed justice multiple times. But, uh, you know, the argument can be made. It's not like he's obstructing because he's guilty on the core charge. He's obstructing because he genuinely doesn't think the investigation should have started in the first place, and he's annoyed by it. So since he, he's annoyed by it and he doesn't think it should have been able to start in the first place, that's why he's basically tried to impede the investigation at a variety of different times. And obviously you could look at what happened with Sessions. You could look at what happened with James Comey. And, like, those things are all certainly at face value. Um, They appear to be obstruction. And I think the issue is they couldn't necessarily get to the intent because it could just be he doesn't want to fucking be investigated and he thinks this thing was stupid and shouldn't have happened from the first place, you know, in the first place. And it also, by the way, could be, goes back to when Trump said, I'm fucked, when he thought he was fucked. I think that's because Donald Trump genuinely has a guilty conscience because the guy's a fucking career criminal. He doesn't know what Mueller's going to dig up. He doesn't know if he's going to focus, you know, just on that charge of of collusion with the Russian government or if he's going to broaden it out. And next thing you know, Mueller's basically involved in an investigation that is akin to what I think the real deal Holyfield investigation is, which is what's happening in the Southern District of New York, where they're really going into all of his business ties. And believe me, if you look through that with a fine tooth comb, you're going to find a lot of stuff. So I've predicted before and I'll predict again right here, right now. Um, I'm of the belief that Donald Trump, and this is based on a variety of reporting and things I've read about his personal finances, I think that he will be indicted on some kind of financial crimes when he's no longer president. Um, But in a weird way, he's kind of protected by being president because it is still an open legal question as to whether or not you can indict a sitting president. And, of course, Mueller said, I'm not going to indict him. So um, he's kind of protected, and the only way to go after him right now is impeachment, not you can't indict him. You have, you'd have to impeach him. And of course, we've gone over that issue before and why I think that's basically 
um, a lose-lose situation if the Democrats go in that direction. Um, so, but I find it hilarious that in trying to protect Trump, there's this overcorrection, this overprotection, where you have to make ridiculous arguments like even if he fi- fired Mueller, that wouldn't be um, obstruction because presumably he'd be replaced by somebody. <laughs> really? That's going to be the point you make? It just, I think it's fair to say, regardless of what you think of the collusion charge, I think it's fair to say that he cer- it certainly at face value looks like he obstructed justice. Whether or not you could actually get him on that is a separate question because the intent uh, issue is a problem, but it certainly looks like he obstructed justice. So I, I just find it hilarious how in-, in an attempt to defend Trump, there's just this massive overreach where he says hilariously silly things and also where he tries to draw a distinction between, oh, there's a difference between saying he's fired and get him out of there. What? <laughs> That's the difference. There's no difference there. Trump was basically protected by his smarter cronies. I think that that's how it, it hit me. Okay, but putting that part aside. Oh, shit. Putting that part aside. Um, there was a story that broke two nights ago, and you heard Barr uh, touch on it a little bit here. And the story basically said, I think it was Washington Post, they originally broke it, and it said, well, Mueller didn't actually like Barr's summary. And Mueller thought it didn't give enough proper context. And then, you know, Barr is saying here that, and in the article it says this too, to, to be clear, Mueller doesn't say that Barr's summary is, quote, inaccurate. In fact, he says it is accurate. There are no inaccuracies in it. What he didn't like was the lack of context, okay? And that, you know, that strikes me as, well, it's a 400-page report. You're not going to, in a summary of the bottom line findings, you're not going to get the full context. But even having said that, I think what Mueller was really upset about is that the media took that information and just kind of said, okay, no collusion and he's not, no obstruction because he's not going to be indicted on it. So yeah, no collusion, no obstruction. And that's kind of like the end of the conversation. And what happened is the media slowly turned on Mueller because they thought Mueller's going to be like this, this last great hope of going after Donald Trump. And they really believed Donald Trump and Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner and all these characters, like the end of a movie, we're going to get dragged out of the White House in handcuffs. And this is what virtually the entire mainstream press thought. And this is what all of, elite, um, all of the elites in the Democratic Party thought. And then when that didn't come to fruition, they had no out but to now turn on Mueller. And so they turned on Mueller. So here's what I think of the whole situation. I'm pretty sure that Mueller, based on the report, he says, okay, we didn't find the evidence of collusion, so there will be no charge on collusion. Um, but then he said specifically on the issue of obstruction, like we can't exon- I can't say he's guilty of a crime, but I also can't exonerate him. And oh yeah, here's a million you know, little pieces of breadcrumb that are trying to lead you in the direction I want to lead you in. And, and basically, I think that Mueller wanted Congress to impeach on the issue of obstruction. And I think that the media, when reporting on Barr's uh, bottom line findings, they obviously didn't get that that actually is what it appears like Mueller wants. Mueller wants Congress to maybe take action on the issue of impeachment and uh, on the issue of, excuse me, obstruction. They want to impeach 
They, Mueller wants them to impeach over the issue of obstruction, and his, like, weird, mealy-mouthed waffling on the issue of obstruction wasn't, you know, uh, described accurately by Barr, because Barr just went with the bottom-line finding. Hey, there's going to be no indictment on collusion, so no collusion, and there's going to be no indictment on uh, obstruction, uh, even though he says he, quote, can't exonerate him. Bottom line is no indictment, so basically, done, let's move on. So when Barr's report came out incredibly conclusive with just the bottom line findings, the media was like, okay, well, this was a flop, and Mueller didn't find anything. And then when the report came out, the redacted version of the report came out, and everybody went through it, they went, well, certainly on this thing of uh, obstruction, there's, like, it's obvious that he kind of obstructed, but the issue is just not sure we can indict him over the obstruction. But is the bar just as high for impeachment? I don't know. You don't need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't think, for impeachment. Um, so I think Mueller wanted Congress to start impeachment proceedings over the issue of obstruction, but like his waffling on the issue and his trail of breadcrumbs on the issue was summarized by Barr by Barr saying no indictment on the issue of uh, obstruction and he's not exonerated, but he's not guilty and not going to be indicted. So it is what it is. And bottom line is this, his bottom line finding, Barr's bottom line finding, did not give the nuance that Mueller wanted on the issue of obstruction. And because it didn't give the nuance and the media ran with the non-nuanced version of it, I think Mueller's grand plan kind of backfired on him. Because I do think in Mueller's heart of hearts, he wanted, based on, you know, the reaction now, it seems like he was... He kind of wanted Congress to try to impeach over the issue of obstruction, and Barr's findings kind of nipped that in the bud and stopped that from happening because then the media turned on Mueller. So it's like he's angry about that, that now I think the media, they're not pro-Mueller anymore. You see, you know, we covered the fucking Bill Maher new rule segment where he turned on Mueller, and, um, and I would say this. If Mueller really wanted um, – Congress to try to impeach Trump on the issue of obstruction, he should have just fucking said it. He should have just said it instead of like waffling on it and then getting mad when Congress hasn't done it yet and the media kind of turns on him. Don't waffle. You should have said, in my opinion, you know, uh, as special counsel, uh, I'm not sure we have the authority to indict a sitting president. Having said that, there's plenty of evidence to start impeachment proceedings on the issue of obstruction, and I recommend that Congress does this. He could have said that, you know. Now, whatever, he might make some sort of argument about how, oh, the independence of Congress, and I don't want to get involved in that. But you're the special counsel, dude. So, you know, you're the one who went through all the evidence. You're the one who created this report. You're the one who probably knows more about this issue than anybody else. So... If he just be more direct, so I don't like I I got I got some backlash for tweeting something um, in the wake of the news that Mueller wasn't totally happy with Barr's summary because I said, okay, so Mueller doesn't like Barr's summary. Well, then here are my questions for Mueller. Number one, okay, do you mean that there was collusion and there will be an indictment over collusion? No, he doesn't mean that. Okay. 
So will there be an indictment over some other ancillary crimes? No, he doesn't mean that. Okay, so will there be an indictment over obstruction? No, he doesn't mean that. So Barr was right about all those things. So what do you mean? Like, what's the problem here? If the bottom line findings don't change, what's the problem? And again, I think the problem is he kind of wanted Congress to move forward with impeachment proceedings over obstruction. But then my response to him on that would be, you should have just said it. (laughs) You should have just said it instead of being like mealy mouth and waffly. And then you get mad when Barr kind of accurately summarizes what you said, although admittedly it's not nuanced enough. And then the media turns on you. He, does, he didn't want the media to turn on him. I think that that's like the core of it. And he was upset when he saw the press coverage where the media kind of turned on him because he was like, no, no. I think in his mind, he's thinking, no, no, I left Congress out to like impeach over obstruction. You know, you can move forward with that. But you were too fucking, you know, up in the air about it and too mealy mouthed and not direct enough. So, uh, you know, honestly, if he wanted that, he should have just said it. He should have just laid that out because the whole like, oh, you know, hey, we can't find him guilty. We can't indict him on this issue. Uh, however, I'm not exonerating him either. It's like, just say what your fucking take on it is. What is your personal opinion on this issue? What is your personal opinion, Rob Mueller? Your personal opinion is obviously you should take some sort of action on the issue of impeachment uh, when it comes to obstruction, whereas I don't have the authority to, to indict. At least I don't know if I do or think I do. So we're not going to go down that road and there's not enough evidence, but maybe impeach over obstruction. So it's just, listen, here's the final thing I'll say about this is we're never going to get past this. Like it hit me the other night. We will never fully get past the Mueller report and Russia gate. Because now I feel like there's just enough stuff on both sides of this where nobody will shut the fuck up and move on to, like, you know, the issues that I think are the core issues of this upcoming election and the core issues in the country right now. You know, I think it's way more important. And even if you really wanted to impeach, there's a much better argument on the issue of Yemen and us illegally backing a Saudi genocide in Yemen emoluments. We're going to get to a story a little bit later on about how there's an emoluments case and a judge ruled that the Democrats can proceed. And the judge agreed with the Democrats definition of emoluments over Trump's definition because Trump was trying to weasel out of responsibility here and argue like, no, no, my businesses can take money from foreign governments. And that's bullshit. That's nonsense. That's a core violation of the emoluments clause. So like, But even putting those issues aside, obviously we should put front and center like Medicare for all, free college, living wage, ending the wars, so on and so forth, all these super important issues. And some people argue, well, yeah, but you could walk and chew gum at the same time. Like you could talk about, you know, Russiagate and the Mueller report and that stuff. But my response is, well, obviously not. Obviously not. Because there was a fucking, the U.S. announced we're officially backing another coup effort in Venezuela the other day. That got, you know... The, the Twitter effect for maybe two hours, where people were talking about that a lot for two hours, then that was immediately replaced by the whole bar Mueller thing, where they spoke about that for like eight hours. So we obviously can't walk and chew gum at the same time, because anytime there's a development in this goofy-ass soap opera about the Mueller report, that overrides all the other really serious news. So there actually is a limited amount of time, and there is um, you know, a dominant media narrative that, that takes over, and we have a choice. Are we going to make those things 
like, hey, let's stop the fucking coup in Venezuela. Let's fucking save people's lives because they're dying because they don't have health coverage and we need Medicare for all. Or are we going to make those cornerstone issues some bullshit soap opera shit like uh, the Mueller report, which, by the way, again, what's going to happen now? What's going to happen? So we had all this drama and all this, oh, my God, Mueller said this and Barr said this and blah, 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 blah. What's going to happen? Uh, here, I'll answer it for you. Nothing. Dick. Nothing's going to happen. Should Mueller testify? Sure, he should testify. Is he going to? I don't know. As of right now, I don't think it's scheduled, that scheduled to happen. So in other words, Twitter melted down another night about, oh, my God, uh, Mueller kind of disagreed with Barr's summary. Oh, my God. And they acted like something was going to come from that. No, nothing's going to come from that. Nothing's going to come from that. Because, again, it's not like, you know, Mueller's saying, Barr was wrong. There was collusion. He didn't say that. (laughs) Barr was wrong. There was obstruction and will now indict over it. No, Mueller was just mad because there wasn't, he didn't make it nuanced enough and he, he didn't make it clear that Congress still has the out of impeaching over obstruction. And Mueller was mad that the media didn't conclude that when the summary was released. So the media turned on Mueller and he's upset about that. That's all that is, I think. So I don't know. I, I get annoyed and I get frustrated because this does suck all the air out of the room and it does overshadow other more important issues. I think it's good that Barr testified here. I think a lot of what he said was total and utter bullshit. I think some of what he said was true. Um, But ultimately, I don't think this isn't going to end in the way that, you know, a lot of the Democratic partisans want it to end and in the way that the media wants it to end. It's not going to end with Trump being dragged out and handcuffed. Sorry. I mean, that's just, it is what it is at this point. And it's like, they're still hanging on for some sort of weird, you know, last minute hope that everything will be all right. And, uh, you know, you got Mueller riding in on his white horse to save the day and Trump goes down in flames. And I just think that's uh, super naive at this point. So, Again, it's good that he testified. I recommend watching as much of it as you possibly can. Um, I do think Mueller should testify as well. But ultimately, even though there was a disagreement as to um, how conclusive that summary was that Barr released, it's all going to come to naught because it doesn't change any of the, you know, the bottom line findings and doesn't change the reality. And it certainly doesn't mean, well, now there will be indictments. (laughs) So the ship has sailed, and that's something a lot of people – have a hard time swallowing. Okay, next. All right, so here we go. Here comes Hansi Uncle Joseph. This is the Hill reporting. They say, Former Vice President Joe Biden has surged in the polls since launching his bid for the Democratic presidential nomination, opening up a double-digit lead over the rest of the field in two national surveys. What? A CNN poll released Tuesday found Biden jumping 11 points to 39% support, a 24-point lead over Senator Bernie Sanders, who is at 15% support. No other candidate in the race has double-digit backing from respondents. And a morning consult survey released Tuesday found Biden with 36% support, followed by Sanders at 22%. That's a six-point bounce for Biden from the same survey released earlier this month. 
while Sanders has fallen by two points. No other candidate reaches double-digit support in the morning console poll either. Biden's polling strength also extends to the first in the nation primary state of New Hampshire. A Suffolk University survey released Tuesday found the former Delaware senator in the lead in New Hampshire with 20% support, followed by uh, Sanders and South Bend Mayor uh, P. Booty Judge at 12%. Senator Elizabeth Warren is in fourth place at 8%. So um, let's be clear about this. This is largely nonsense. Now, here's why this is nonsense. Again, you go to the methodology of the poll. I mean, we're talking a 24-point lead over Bernie Sanders, 24-point lead. Now, there's a general rule in polling. When you get something called an outlier, you can usually dismiss it. In other words, the outlier is not indicative of the reality of the situation because the trend is, uh, you know, not that extreme. So you can dismiss the extreme one because that's an outlier, and it's not really, it doesn't really describe the reality of the situation. So when we talk about a 24-point lead, I don't care how much, you know, somebody might dislike Bernie Sanders. You have to acknowledge this is way outside of what all the other polls are. All the other polls show either Bernie leading or, in some instances, Biden being a little bit up, but nowhere near 24 percentage points. So why is this? Well, of course, everybody on Twitter did what they should have done, which is they dug into the methodology of this CNN poll. And one of the things that they've done in the past that you know, skews the poll against Bernie is that they undersample younger voters because Bernie Sanders' support overwhelmingly comes from younger voters. And in any election where Bernie Sanders is going to be the victor, there's going to be a massive turnout of younger voters. So when you're doing polling and you're not accommodating for that, well, then that's misleading by its very nature. It's like saying, let's do a poll, but let's omit the strongest base of support for one of the two candidates. Why would you do that? That's, imagine looking at a poll that's all young people and very few old people. You know what that would be? That would be Bernie Sanders by more than 24 points. He would overwhelmingly crush everybody in sight. But this poll is even worse because apparently um, the sample size of younger voters, but not just, you know, the like millennials, but this was like millennials and Gen Xers were mostly, um, you know, not used in this poll. So the overwhelming um, majority of them were, I think, over 65. What? What? Obviously, the older you go with the candidates, the more they're going to support the status quo politicians. That's always been the case. The older you go the more pro-establishment they are. And, you know, and also the more name recognition is super important. So, yeah, this poll was crafted in a way to 100% put Biden in the lead by a mile and a half. But this is what we see, guys. This is a fucking trend. The trend is totally oversample older voters because those are the people who are, you know, most likely to not be pro-Bernie. And it happens time and time and time and time and time again. Now, I will say this, though. I do also think Biden got a bump from when he announced. I do think that um, there was definitely an uptick in support for him when he officially launched. Now, it is also true they oversampled older voters, but I think that there's still plenty of evidence and plenty of reason to believe he did see a bump. And so there is an argument that even putting this outlier poll aside, uh, putting these two outlier polls aside, 
he could still be in the lead. He could still be in the lead. Now, the lead might be three or four points, but that's a lead nonetheless. So, I, I honestly, I have mixed feelings about this because I'm still standing by my prediction of Biden's going to tank in the polls, and I think he's going to tank relatively quickly. In other words, before the first votes are cast. That's what I mean by relatively quickly. Um, before the Iowa caucus. And, you know, what, what's the catalyst for it? I don't know. It could be when Biden shoves his foot in his mouth 8,000 times, as he's inevitably going to do. Um, but, again, the media likes him, so perhaps they're not going to cover the negative stuff, you know, in, in such a forthright way where it's obvious to everybody that he's shoving his foot in his mouth. So maybe it's not the media coverage that makes him tank. But I certainly think that, you know, by the debates and when we see two or three debates, that there's no way he's still going to be the front runner after that. Um, because even though Biden's a good debater, he is staking positions that are comical in the year 2019. Like he's openly arguing against Medicare for all and for a public option. Um, he just oh, yesterday he just came out and supported Donald Trump and John Bolton's neocon regime change coup in Venezuela. You're running for the Democratic nomination for president, and you're arguing that neocons are right and we should do more regime change? Are you fucking crazy? But the answer is no. He's, he's being calculated in the sense that he wants to be the centrist guy because Bernie's got that left lane, you know, down. Well, that's not going to fly anymore. So I do think he's going to tank in the polls. But it is also a fact that he has gotten a bump since announcing, and um, he very possibly is the front runner. So I think we need to digest, digest that. It's totally fair to talk about how these polls were skewed, but I think it's also, it would be a little bit delusional to act like as of this moment right now, like he's not somewhat competitive with Bernie. I think he is. Um, but then there's also weird shit. I forget whether they're in New Hampshire or Iowa, but Biden did a rally and just pulled a couple hundred people uh, Bernie did a rally and pulled a couple thousand people. So there's still that thing on the ground of like, you get the sense that Bernie supporters are Bernie supporters, you know, whereas Biden supporters are those casual people who are sitting on the couch who's like, who? Oh, Biden's running? Yeah, I guess. He's from the Obama years. I'll support him. So I think there's a difference in the, in the enthusiasm between the two kinds of supporters. And again, I think the polls are a little skewed by undersampling younger voters. But we need to take all threats here seriously. And I just watched the other day Knock Down the House, which is the documentary on uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Cori Bush, Amy Valella, and who was the other uh, Justice Democrat they had in it? I apologize. I'm blanking on it right at this moment. But they basically followed a, a bunch of, oh, Paula Jean Swearingen running against Joe Manchin. They basically followed the campaigns of these Justice Democrats trying to topple these established candidates. And we all know, you know how it ended. We won some races. We lost most of our races. But that's par for the course when you're the underdog, and that's par for the course when you're, you know, you're at a monetary disadvantage and you're only taking small dollars and, and all that stuff. But there is a message of hope I got from that documentary, and that message is as long as you keep fighting, you're eventually going to win. So, you know, the victory is in the work. The victory is in the, like, I do a recurring donation um, to Bernie Sanders. I'm willing to help the campaign however I could possibly help the campaign. Um, 
And, you know, for all the people who are canvassing for Bernie, who are knocking on doors for Bernie, who are involved on a regular basis, as long as we keep fighting, as long as we keep working, as long as we keep spreading the message, even things like, you know, spreading it online, like all that stuff is so important that as long as we keep doing that, I think the future is bright and that we will win. So that, gave, that documentary gave me hope, but, you know, it's quite a dichotomy and quite a shock to the system to see how awesome the gains are that we've made and how hard everybody works. But then you look at a poll and it's kind of skewed and it's like Joe Biden is leading by 17 quadrillion points. And you're like, well, fuck that shit. Fuck that shit. And the media is going to play a huge role in this um, upcoming election because it's hard to tell, man. My original guess was all of the anti-Bernie Sanders coverage is actually going to help Bernie at this point because it actually did that with Trump the last time, like all the anti-Bernie stuff. And it's just you know, all the anti-Trump stuff helped him get in the White House. For Bernie, I've seen a lot of the same dynamic. The more they attack him, the stronger he gets. But then it's also the case that, I don't know, maybe the endless positive coverage of the other candidates helps those candidates. So shitting on Bernie might help Bernie, but bolstering the centrist might help the centrist too. That's a weird dynamic. Um, That could be the case, or people can just reject the spoon-feeding of centrist candidates to them, and it doesn't help them. But it's also the case that some of the negative coverage of Bernie can hurt Bernie. I definitely think the whole thing about the Boston Marathon bomber voting, I definitely think that hurt Bernie. So I don't know. There's a lot of different variables to discuss here, but the polls are skewed. But it's also the case that we shouldn't rest easy and act like everything that's anti-Bernie is a conspiracy. We need to take every threat seriously even though admittedly they're overhyping the threat. Bernie Sanders, ooh, shit, let me change the graphic behind me. All right, you guys are going to like this story. I love this story. So Bernie Sanders is calling out and challenging the other candidates in the presidential race. I absolutely love this. Take a look. Sanders calls on Trump presidential candidates to support fair trade deals and stand with workers. Senator Bernie Sanders today called on Donald Trump and all presidential candidates to publicly support a new trade policy agenda that protects domestic jobs and guarantees living wages for American workers. Sanders is the only 2020 presidential candidate who has called for Trump to scrap his new NAFTA, saying that the proposed trade deal does not include adequate protections for workers. Sanders is calling for all 2020 candidates to support an executive order ending federal contracts to corporations that outsource American jobs. That's awesome. A commitment to renegotiate all of our unfair trade deals to prevent outsourcing of American jobs and raise wages. Again, that's awesome. A promise to avoid uh, appointing trade representatives from Wall Street totally agree with that. A pledge to repeal Trump's tax breaks that reward companies for moving their factories overseas. Again, he nailed it. Sanders also committed to label China a currency manipulator and prevent it from dumping artificially cheap products in the U.S. when he is in the White House. So, um, yet again, this is Bernie Sanders. Basically, we're watching him in real time win the Rust Belt back from Donald Trump. I keep saying it, 
Bernie Sanders, the issue for him and the hard race for him is the primary. That's the hard part. The hard part is the primary. The easy part is the general. In fact, I, you know, my prediction is if Bernie Sanders gets to the general, he will beat Donald Trump with over 300 electoral votes. Uh, as of right now, the internal polling coming back from those Rust Belt states has Bernie Sanders up like 10 to 12 points in the Rust Belt states. That's not, like, people like to make the argument of, oh, yeah, well, how did those polls work out for Hillary? And the response is, Hillary Clinton lost, but she also won the popular vote, which means the polls were not that far off. The issue with Hillary was the way her support was dispersed throughout the country wasn't beneficial for her. The way Trump's support was dispersed throughout the country was beneficial to him. So he really won the election because of the Rust Belt. That's why he won. And Hillary Clinton did not step foot in the Rust Belt, is obviously not a populist candidate. It was her husband who signed NAFTA. She supported outsourcing deals. So now you have a Democrat who's a genuinely populist Democrat. And Bernie has been talking about this for decades. He hates these trade deals that outsource American jobs. He wants to protect American workers. He's pro-union. He's pro-living wage. He's in favor of cracking down on the owner class because the owner class is willing to screw over workers willy-nilly and not think twice about it as long as they pad their bottom line and make more profit. So all you need is a populist Democrat, and Trump is done in the Rust Belt. It's not even close. It's not even close. Bernie Sanders' strongest support is in those Rust Belt states. Now, you know, so that, what, what? That means Trump, that means Trump would have to pick up support elsewhere. Where's he going to pick it up from? What do you think? Donald Trump is going to win New York over Bernie? Donald Trump is going to win California over Bernie? No, those are easy, uh, you know, in the Bernie column. So where's Trump going to get his fucking, where's he going to get his electoral votes? Only the deepest of the deep red states. That's the only way, those are the only places Trump would get his votes. Basically, all the swing states and all the blue states go to Bernie Sanders, over 300 electoral college votes, boom, over. Why? Because of this strategy right here. This strategy he's laying out is the perfect strategy to win a general election. Absolutely perfect. So, and on the policy, too, let's be clear. It's not just that it's a good strategy. He's substantively correct. And one of the things I'm most excited for is if Bernie Sanders becomes president, do you have any idea how awesome his executive orders are going to be? Oh, it brings a smile to my face just thinking about it. We saw even Obama in his second term, towards the end of his second term, he started signing some great executive orders, freeing all these nonviolent drug offenders, raising um, wages for federal contractors, like just all these casually on the way out the door, like, oh, yeah, you know what, fuck you, right wing. Here, I'll do a couple decent things on the way out the door. That was Obama, a corporate centrist. What do you think Bernie Sanders would do with executive orders? Ha, 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 ha. Remember, I, you know, we, I went after Trump because Trump had said, oh, I'm going to do this whole buy American thing. Well, under U.S. law right now, we have uh, the federal government is supposed to only buy American products. But you know what happened? There's a giant loophole where that includes all of our allies, too. So buy American means you could even get products from Israel. The U.S. government could buy products from Israel. And we say, eh, American enough. Bernie Sanders would definitely sign an executive order that says, no, no, the federal government has to buy actually American, like not us and our allies, just us here. And that alone would help um, U.S. industry because you're saying everything the federal government buys, and the federal government is big, everything they purchase needs to be made in America. 
I mean, it's little things like this that really change lives and change lives for the better in this country. And Bernie, I think, would do all the right things when it comes to trade, and he would do whatever's possible through executive orders to make it so that uh, workers are treated fairly. So I love this. I think he should uh, really rub this in everybody's face, not just Donald Trump, but also the other Democratic candidates, and make them step up to the plate, man. Make them agree to that. Make them agree to an executive order ending federal contracts to corporations that outsource American jobs. So GM, oh, would you like to send production of the Chevy Blazer to Mexico? Well, now your $400 million U.S. government contract is canceled. They will flip like that, bitch, because they would make more money in the instance of keeping a job here in that circumstance. The guy knows what he's doing. He's right, and this is brilliant. Okay. Let's do uh, the Venezuela thing, and then we'll take a a break. So fairness and accuracy in reporting did a media analysis on the coverage of what's happening in Venezuela. And the findings are just absolutely mental. Now, it was announced, I think, two days ago now. Um, Pompeo spoke about it. Vice President Pence spoke about it. Uh, they basically said, we're, now, we're officially supporting Operation Libertad, or whatever it's called, where uh, Juan Guaido, who's the opposition in Venezuela, he's got a bunch of thugs with guns, military folks with guns, who have defected from the Venezuelan military and now support him, and they're literally trying to do a violent coup and take out Maduro. Now, every other direct attempt to do this failed. Um, would you like to take a guess what's happened to this point? Now, this could change. I don't know. But as of right now, as I'm talking to you guys, this one failed too. So Juan Guaido tried to take the country from Maduro and tried to take over the Venezuelan government and do a coup. It did not work. The U.S. government was officially backing it. And again, it didn't work. But either way, like, to just the gall of this country to just casually act like, well, what do you mean? Yeah, we're going to support the overthrowing of another country, so we're supporting regime change yet again. And to act like that's totally normal, totally okay, and just another day, it's like, no, what the fuck gave you the right to do that? The answer is nothing, but we act like we have the right. So this is what's so frustrating to people like me is – The whole premise of the conversation needs to be challenged because the premise of the conversation is, well, obviously we have the ability to do this and the right to do this if we so choose. Just the question is, should we do it? So in other words, will this action work is usually the way the conversation goes. Like, oh, my God, U.S. intervention hasn't worked in the past. Forget working or not working. You don't have the right under international law to, like, casually say we're going to back a violent overthrowing of a foreign government. And then we have the nerve to scream about election meddling over a couple hundred thousand dollars in fucking Facebook ads. 
When another country does Facebook ads in our country, oh, our country's under attack. Oh, my goodness. Oh, lordy. But us, we're like, oh, yeah, we're going to officially back a violent coup in another country. Well, I, that's meddling on the next level, son. That's meddling on human growth hormone and steroids. But they don't care about the hypocrisy. Hypocrisy doesn't matter to them. It's just like, whatever, we get to do what we want. You get to shut the fuck up. Well, that's stupid. And I don't play that game. And the world shouldn't play that game. Now, but at least we have a, a system where the media is the watchdog of power. So at least the media is going to call out the double standard of the U.S., the hypocrisy of the U.S., the clear violation of international law, the clear violation of U.S. law. So the media is going to do it, right? Let's take a look. A fair survey of U.S. opinion journalism on Venezuela found no voices in elite corporate media that opposed regime change in that country. Over a three-month period, zero opinion pieces in the New York Times and Washington Post took an anti-regime change or pro-Maduro Chavista position. Not a single commentator on the big three Sunday morning talk shows or PBS NewsHour came out against President Nicolas Maduro uh, stepping down from the Venezuelan government. Of the 76 total articles, opinion videos, or TV uh, commentator segments that centered on or gave more than passing attention to Venezuela, 54, 72% expressed explicit support for the Maduro administration's ouster. 11, 14%, were ambiguous, but were only classified as such for lack of explicit language. Reading between the lines, most of these were clearly also pro-regime change. Another 11, 14% took no position, but many similarly offered ideological ammo for those in support. So this is the way this works. Chomsky calls it manufacturing consent. What you do is the U.S. government will say to their reporters, their because the reporters just want sources, and they have sources from, ooh, I have a source from within the CIA. I have a source from within the FBI. I have a source from within the Pentagon. I have a source from within the executive branch of this country's government. Look at me. And what they do is they will tell the reporters exactly what the bullshit line from the U.S. government is. Now, the U.S. government wants regime change in Venezuela. So all of the shit that these people say to the reporters is, oh, that Maduro, oh, he's so terrible, he's so bad, he's so wrong, for, for reasons of freedom and democracy, liberty and justice, we must support the ouster of this regime. Now, these reporters are so stupid, none of them stop for a second and go, well, hold on now. You're claiming the reason we got to get rid of this guy is because he's a terrible dictator and he's evil. But we support 73% of the world's dictatorships, including probably the biggest terrorist regime on the planet, the Saudi government, that's currently carrying out a genocide as we speak, and just killed 37 people for protesting the other day. So how can you're pretending to care about human rights, but you back some of the biggest human rights violators on the planet? I don't, there's a disconnect there. Why are you focusing solely on this guy? None of them are smart enough to, make, to connect those dots. Or perhaps some of them are smart enough, but they know if they connect those dots, you're done at the Washington Post. You're done at the New York Times. You know, now you're a fringe, kooky person. Ooh. So that's the dynamic here. The U.S. government builds the case for regime change by talking about how evil and bad and terrible this person is. Then the media runs with it as if it's like, you know, just calling balls and strikes. Like, oh, yes, 
The people are suffering in Venezuela, and it's 100% because of the regime. So it's obvious all moral people obviously would want to see this regime's uh, this regime taken out of power. Does that sound familiar to you in any way? This is only exactly what happened in the lead up to the Iraq War. Nonstop, the government saying to idiots in the press, "Oh, Saddam Hussein! Oh, he's so evil and bad! Oh, we gotta get rid of him!" And then the idiots casually ran all the hit pieces, casually ran all the articles. Now. There's, of course, a grain of truth in how bad these governments are, but we're not actually concerned about their human rights abuses. In fact, in the case of Saddam, when he was doing his worst human rights abuses against the, Kur- the Kurds, we were arming him and backing him. So it's not about human rights. Stop pretending it is about human rights. John Bolton even bothered to say the reality on Fox Business Network when he just came out and said, yeah, this is about oil. This is about oil. Venezuela has tremendous oil reserves. We want to get our hands on it. This is an important issue for Western capital. So, yeah, we're going to build a case for regime change, and we're going to try to fucking take them out, and that's exactly what's happening right now. So just know that that's the reality of it. And in a world that made sense with the media that was good, at least 50% of the coverage would be, let me tell you the real reason why we want to topple Maduro. Let me tell you the re- real reason why we're suddenly concerned about the human rights of Venezuelans. Guys, Flint, Michigan still has poisoned water. Flint, Michigan still has poisoned water. Our infrastructure is crumbling. It gets a grade of D+. In rural parts of this country in the South, hookworm has returned. That's a disease for third world countries because the infrastructure is so poor. This government doesn't care about the American people. And you're going to tell me they're just so concerned about the human rights of Venezuelans? This has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with that. And in a world that made sense, the media would point it out to you, and at least half the coverage would be, hold on here, what are we doing? Hey, our regime change uh, was terrible in Iraq. Our regime change was terrible in Libya. Um, maybe it's not a good idea to just casually discuss trying to do it again. Hey, maybe we also shouldn't waste the money on doing it because we could use that money here at home. Hey, maybe this, we, as a matter of principle, we shouldn't just willy-nilly violate international law like we're currently doing. Hey, wait a minute, didn't uh, Donald Trump say on the campaign trail half the time talking about foreign policy, we're going to stop doing these regime change wars, and now all of a sudden he's backing a regime change coup? Like, in a world that made sense, the media would at least present this side 50% of the time, and they don't. And I always find it hilarious, you know, you have the right-wingers cry and cry and cry and bitch and moan, liberal bias in the media, liberal bias, why can't you give us an equal bias, liberal bias? (laughs) Meanwhile, the people who really should be bitching are the left. The left should be screaming about this from the mountaintops, saying, no, you know what the press is? They are socially liberal. They don't hate gay people. They don't hate, bl- hate black people. Wow, congratulations on coming to that very basically basic moral position. It's wonderful. And the reason why they do that is because they know that those people buy products too. And we live in a corporatocracy, and, you know, they don't want to offend those people. So, good, they're socially liberal. I agree with that. Economically, they're deeply conservative because they support the status quo, and they support the existing structure and existing hierarchy in this country. So... You know, the idea that, like, oh, the left-wing press, they're not left. Are you fucking kidding me? Not a single voice, not a single voice saying, maybe regime change is a bad idea in Venezuela. Maybe we should mind our business. Maybe we should follow international law. Maybe the U.S. government doesn't give a fuck about human rights. This is insanity. 
And this is why you come to shows like this, to get the truth about this stuff. And it's sad that you have to. It's sad that you have to go to a, you know, a loudmouth YouTuber to get, to get the truth about what's happening in this world. But nonetheless, that's where we are. I have more credibility than the fucking New York Times, Washington Post, PBS NewsHour, all the Sunday shows combined. And that's terrible. I wish that wasn't the case. You know, because I make dick jokes half the time and I fucking make fart noises with my mouth. And I'll, like, I fuck around. Me and Corin were just talking about shitting on the podcast the other day. Like, I'm the guy that people have to come to to hear basic truths about what we're doing around the world? Are you kidding me? Are you joking? I mean, that's, that's unconscionable. But here we are. Great job from Fairness and Accuracy in reporting. Um, this is a wonderful breakdown and data point. And now you know. Mainstream media is lying to you just as much as Fox News is lying to you. And it's actually maybe more insidious when mainstream media does it because they have the aura of objectivity. They have the aura of, we're so serious, bro. We're the paper of record. We're the New York Times. Now, anyway, let's support the U.S. government as they do more illegal invasions and back illegal regime change coups. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Ro Khanna went on CNN and ran circles around a host. And then Joe Crowley goes after Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Don't miss it, bitch. We will be right back.
Bitch! Alright, I'm back. Oh, fuck. I forgot my drink. Guess what? Your boy is out of seltzer right now. So, I gotta drink this disgusting stuff called, um... What's it called? Water? <laughs> it's fucking terrible, man. I mean, the difference between a nice glass of seltzer, can, glass, bottle, whatever, and water is just, it's immeasurable. Um, <clears throat> I'm taking you all with a walk on my lapel mic here. I will be pouring some water into a seltzer can. At least maybe I'll be able to trick my mind about this. Trick my mind into thinking that it's, uh, it's seltzer. Okay, here we go. I hear the water here. Nice. Oh, yeah. Give me that, baby. Sweet, sweet sesame. Okay. Disgusting. You gross people out there drink water? What the fuck is wrong with you? Why would you have water when you can basically have water with bubbly goodness in it? <laughs> it's just, there's no comparison, man. Come on. Bubbly goodness in water beats non-bubbly goodness 10 out of 10 times. And also, I will argue to the death for original seltzer. So just the bubbles. I don't need no shitty fucking mango taste accompanied with it. Mango taste created with, like, aspartame and some other bullshit. No. I just need some regular-ass seltzer, man. Just some bubbly water is all it takes, and I'm a happy human being. I could drink... I don't need to... I could never have soda ever again in my life. I could die without ever drinking soda ever again because seltzer scratches the itch. It's both healthy... The only bad thing about... Uh, seltzer is that it fucks up your tooth enamel. So I'm sure, like, my teeth are going to fall out in three minutes, but that's okay. It's worth it for the bubbly goodness. All right. Let's talk about our boy, Ro Khanna. And let me uh, grab the clip of his here. So Ro Khanna went on CNN to talk about uh, Joe Biden announcing his campaign and uh, various other issues involving the 2020 election. And uh, he ran circles around Chris Cuomo. This is good. Senator Sanders was on Anderson's show um, before this one, and he said he likes Joe Biden, but he was against NAFTA. Joe Biden was for it. Uh, he was against DOMA. Biden was for it. The war, again, TPP, again. Question. Bernie Sanders if he were to get in, what proof do we have that he could make deals instead of just making demands? Because he's often against things that wind up getting bipartisan support. I would look at what we did on Yemen. Uh, we passed for the first time in history a war powers resolution through the Senate and through the House. It had bipartisan support. Seven Republicans in the Senate, including Senator Rand Paul and Senator Lee, uh, many Republicans in the House, and it was an effort to stop our alliance with the Saudis. That was a clear example of Senator Sanders getting stuff done uh, and working with a broad coalition. All those years in the Senate, what else can you point to? 
I can point to the raise uh, of Amazon workers. Uh, Jeff Bezos credits Senator Sanders. He is directly responsible with legislation we did for 350,000 Americans getting a raise to $15, uh, and that's uh, him being a minority uh, senator. And then, of course, there have been numerous amendments uh, that he uh, has gotten through. Uh, so I, I do believe he will be uh, incredibly effective. And then you have to give him credit for having every candidate, uh, major candidate now speaking, speaking on Medicare for All, and even President Obama acknowledging that Medicare for All uh, should be part of the discussion. Now, is it the right discussion to have? Is it the winning discussion? Or is Nancy Pelosi's posture more of where the Democratic Party is going to wind up, which is let's save the ACA? They want to go the litigation route. They want to fight it. He's, this president is having the AG fight it. Now we can save the ACA, leave Medicare for all as an ambition for another day. Win now. I agree we should save the ACA. But, Chris, when you elect a president, people don't want just uh, to save what a past president did. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to uh, save what Lyndon Johnson did or what Obama did. They want, what are you going to do to take our country forward? And here's why Medicare for all matters. It's going to save people costs. They get it. Uh, we shouldn't be giving all of these profits to Aetna CEO making $59 million a year uh, and having the middle class pay for it. It will lower costs. It will help small business it might. Uh, so that they don't have to bear that cost. It might. The transition costs could be crippling. You know this. Uh, and there's no reason to bury people in the details just yet, bro. But I'll tell you, I invite the senator on on a regular basis. I was on the stage with him the other night at the town hall. I tell him on a regular basis, come on, make your pitch about health care. I'll give you more time than anybody because the devil's in the details. The transition costs could be crippling. How do you get around them? Well, I would say a few things. First, uh, it makes economic sense in a time of a digital age where people have to change jobs. Right now, the biggest reason you can't be an entrepreneur or change jobs is because your health care is tied to your employer. And if you talk to companies in Silicon Valley, many of whom, by the way, support Medicare for All, they will tell you the reason they're outsourcing jobs is not because of the wage differential. It's because of health care costs. We're paying far more than other countries. Taiwan has a single-payer system, and Heritage Foundation ranks them as a free market economy, more free than the United States, but they understand that they don't want profits going to insurance and pharmaceuticals. Uh, the average American, I think, will save money. Now, I agree with you. It's a huge transition. The insurance industry is $1.7 trillion. It employs 500,000 people. Uh, Bernie Sanders' plan allows still for supplemental private insurance, if you read the details of the plan, and we have to figure out how we make this transition. But I think well, that, you raise a good point, though, and I respect you for bringing it up yourself, which is it has become one of the top two or three, if not the, depending on which metric you want to look at, main employers in the country. So when you say, hey, this is going to mean that government will absorb more of this, there will be less private sector, you could wind up costing people jobs. Well, the transition is very important, and people can work in uh, numerous other ways. They can help administer uh, Medicare. They can help work in uh, other health care jobs that are going to be created with telemedicine. Uh, I think the transition is very important, and anyone honest has to look at that. But the basic point is, uh, and you know who agreed with the single-payer system? Donald Trump. In the America uh, We Deserve in 2000, he wrote that the Canadian system is better because it gives more benefits and it has less cost. And the average American, here's what it's going to mean. Instead of paying $5,000 to a private insurance company on average, now you're going to pay a much smaller fee 
And who's going to lose out? The insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies. And you're going to get to keep your doctor and have better care. I believe many entrepreneurs, Warren Buffett has talked about Medicare for All. It's the single biggest cause for wage stagnation. Vice President Biden is absolutely right. Middle-class wages have stagnated. If you talk to economists, the reason for wage stagnation is the rising health care premiums. Employers have been giving their money to uh, health care costs as opposed to raising wages. And this is why we have to make the economic argument for Medicare for All. That was a master class. That was a master class. What I love about what Congressman Ro Khanna did there is he went into their house and beat them. So in other words, he allowed the conversation to exist on the grounds of the economic arguments. And he said, okay, let's have that conversation. And then he uh, demolished uh, the right-wing perspective and the corporate Democratic perspective on their terms. Now, I also like what Bernie does on this issue. Usually what Bernie does is, and to be fair, this is the more leftist approach to dealing with the arguments on this front. Bernie argued from a moral perspective. Okay, so in other words, you know, hey, healthcare is a right, it's not a privilege. It makes no sense that in the, you know, richest country in the world, we still have tens of millions of people who are uninsured. Um, there's no excuse for this. It is the morally correct thing to do. It's the ethical thing to do. So Bernie makes those arguments, and those are powerful arguments, and it's important to have those in the conversation. But Ro Khanna makes the economic arguments where he goes into on the right-wing territory, on the corporate democratic territory, and he destroys them on their own grounds. He's playing an away game, and he won by 30 points in the away game. You see what I mean? So... Um, one point that I always bring up, and, and, and to be clear, I think you should make both of those arguments. You should make the, mor the moral argument and you should make the economic argument because Medicare for All is one of those issues where we're right on both fronts. So an argument I always like to bring up is uh, Medicare for All would save $5 trillion over a decade. Now, originally it was $2 trillion from the Libertarian Mercatus Institute, but uh, that study is not legit because it's from the Libertarian Cato Institute. It's actually funded by the Koch brothers. So, and by the way, they changed those numbers recently because they just had the first Medicare for All hearings in Congress, and one of the dudes from that study went to go testify, and they changed their findings to act like Medicare for All doesn't save money so that the dude, when he, when he testifies, can say, oh, it doesn't save money. It's unbelievably disingenuous and dishonest, and, and it's just flat-out propaganda at this point. But according to a study from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, Medicare for all over a decade would save $5 trillion. I trust those numbers way more than I trust the Libertarian uh, Mercatus Institute. So that's a point that I always like to bring up. Um, now, to get to some of the points that Chris Cuomo makes there, to argue against Bernie, he says, like, well, you know, how can he make deals instead of just making demands? So in other words, his argument is, well, Bernie's like a far leftist, and he's going to get nothing accomplished because he's, he's an ideologue, and he's, he's so far on the left that there's going to be no uh, common ground with the right, and so nothing's going to get done. Nothing could be further from the truth with that argument when it comes to Bernie Sanders. You know who struggles to get shit done all the time? Centrist Democrats, because the only stuff they actually agree to get done with the right are things that are terrible for the American people. 
like Wall Street deregulation, like more wars. Now, Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, what does uh, Ro Khanna bring up brilliantly? He says, it was me and Bernie Sanders working with Republicans, including Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee um, and Rand Paul, working with them on ending the U.S. support for the genocide in Yemen. So you want to talk about a bipartisan achievement. There's a bipartisan achievement. And by the way, who's to blame for that not follow, uh, going through? Trump, he vetoed it. He's got the blood of Yemeni babies on his hand because he's a, he's a total sellout to the Saudi government. You want to talk about collusion? How about collusion with the Saudi government? So it was Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna that got that through. He get, brought up another great example. Getting shit done. Are you serious? It was Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna that just got 350,000 Amazon workers a living wage. You want to talk about getting stuff done? See, the brilliance of Bernie is this, and the brilliance of smart leftists is this. There are certain areas where you do have crossover with libertarian conservatives. Meet on those issues and get it done, whether it's uh, you know, ending the drug war, doing criminal justice reform, whether it's foreign policy issues and uh, bringing our troops home from certain places. There's some crossover with Tea Party-like conservatives, libertarian-leaning conservatives, and the Freedom Caucus. So if anybody's going to get anything done that's positive, it's going to be a leftist president. Now, furthermore, the other thing that's brilliant about Bernie is when it's necessary to crack skulls, he's going to crack skulls. So he'll apply political pressure when it's necessary to get his bold agenda passed. And then also, when he can, he'll work with Republicans, again, not compromising his own values, actually sticking by his morality and his own policy platform and getting them to agree on his terms. I think another good example of this is there's a chance that with some uh, paleo-conservative-leaning Republicans, they might help him with trade. So most of the Republicans are total sellouts, and they're totally you know, in favor of all these outsourcing deals. But I'm sure there's a handful, just like there's a handful of Republicans who are like, yeah, let's not aid Saudi Arabia as they kill babies. There's going to be some Republicans who are like, yeah, maybe we should stop outsourcing jobs and we should uh, renegotiate permanent normal trade relations with China and we should... So that, I mean, that's the old Pat Buchanan paleoconservative wing. These people are deeply, deeply regressive and reactionary on racial issues and they're super bad on immigration. But when it comes to trade, sometimes they make some sense. So the trick is, guys, when you agree with the other side, work with them on your terms. And when you don't agree, you say... I'm fucking coming for you, and I'm going to win. And that's what Bernie does. Um, And then finally, I'm so – see, this is such a good example of why people hate mainstream media, because the way everything is framed is just so dumb. So he says there, you know, is Medicare for all the winning discussion? Well, 70% of the country agrees with it, so I would say, yes, by definition, it is a winning issue because it's the overwhelming majority. Now even over a ma- more than 50%, so a majority of Republicans support Medicare for all. So it's a majority of Democrats, a majority of the country, and a majority of Republicans, and your response is, is Medicare for all the winning discussion? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And if you bothered to read about this shit, you would know that. And then the Dodge is always like, well... If you're for Medicare for all, aren't you by definition against the Affordable Care Act? And doesn't that mean you're kind of in agreement with Republicans? Republicans, if they had their way, would go to a 100% laissez-faire, free capitalist, rugged individualist uh, health insurance system, which is the worst possible system because when we had it, the outcomes were the worst. 
The most people were uninsured. The most people were dying because they didn't have access to health care. This is proven. So you're saying there's an equivalence between the left who wants everybody covered with better health outcomes and the right who wants the fewest number of people covered with worse health outcomes. Somehow that's equivalent because you both don't agree on the Affordable Care Act. Well, the left has been clear all along. Nobody's saying, get rid of the Affordable Care Act, and then there's a transition where, like, nobody has health care, and then we implement Medicare for All. You keep all the protections of the Affordable Care Act in place, and then you evolve to the next step, which is public option and then Medicare for All. So that's the movement. You go keep everything as it is, the Affordable Care Act protections stay, then you evolve to a Medicare for All position. But, the, again, they, they don't – he doesn't – he doesn't know this shit, or he knows it, but he's dishonest. He just sucks at his job. And so he ends up saying stupid things like, um, how does, how's Bernie going to make deals instead of just making demands? Is Medicare for all the winning discussion? Here's what's not winning. CNN with you as a host. Okay, next. Let's talk about Joe Crowley Beach. Joe Crowley Beach. I have a video for this. So Joe Crowley went on MSNBC to try to stop the left-wing tsunami from taking over the Democrats and taking over the country. Um, And he ended up downplaying Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory over him. Check it out. by the Justice Democrats group and AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the same group has taken a stance against one Democratic candidate for president. I'm talking about Joe Biden here. Is there a problem here with guys named Joe? <laughs> well, I certainly hope not. You know, it's a biblical, it's a biblical name, so I hope not. I think really, though, uh, trying to compare what happened in my congressional uh, race and my loss, and I say this with all humility, you know, I was defeated by Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, uh, but it really was a replacement of one Democrat with another Democrat. And what we need to be focusing on is how we win the heartland of America, how we win in the Rust Belt, in the breadbasket of our country. Uh, those, dip, those interface districts where Democrats actually defeated Republicans to win back the House of Representatives. My loss, the loss of Mr. Capuano in Boston, and other losses in Democratic primaries uh, d- didn't add a seat to the Democratic caucus victory in November. I think that's what we need to focus on nationally as well. So to take a you know, microcosm of my district and play nationally, I think it would be foolhardy. No, 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 no. Okay, so yes, yes, yes. I was the fourth-ranking Democrat in the entire country. I was in the conversation for being the next Democratic leader. You know, uh, I've been in government for an incredibly long time. I raised a tremendous amount of money from Wall Street. I mean, what did he outraise Ocasio-Cortez? Was it like 10 to 1? Was it more than that? Um, but don't, 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 don't take any lesson from that. That's an outlier. It's irrelevant. It's more to do because, you know, she's a, she's a, a, a woman of color and uh, I'm, I'm a white guy and maybe that's the reason why she won in my district. It's got nothing to do with her ideas. It's got nothing to do with 
uh, her strong populist message. It's got nothing to do with her being uncorrupted. It's it. No, 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 no. Don't take any lessons away from it for the rest of the country. The opposite of everything he said there is the truth. <laughs> Needless to say. No, there are lessons. There are deep, important lessons there. For example, they think like, well, sure, in my incredibly left uh, district in New York, you can run somebody who's far left like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but try to do that in a district. That's a swing district. Yes. Um, okay. How about the Rust Belt? which went for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton, a centrist, the people who you think can win, like, oh, that's the way to go, centrism. Hillary lost the entire Rust Belt. Donald Trump won the Rust Belt. Well, what's going on there today? I, we just covered the story the other day. Bernie Sanders is winning by like 12 points in the Rust Belt states. All of the Rust Belt states, all of them, have Bernie up by double digits. And your argument is, don't take any lessons from this, please. No lessons, no lessons. No, the lesson is principled, uncorrupted, populist, working class politicians will win everywhere. How many times have I told you guys this? You know what cuts across party lines? Populism. As soon as people realize the real dividing lines in this country, it is not Democrat versus Republican. It's working class or regular people versus elites versus the establishment. Soon as people realize that, that those are the real dividing lines, it's over. You get a, a blue uh, tsunami across the country, but not blue as in, you know, any old blue will do. Blue as in populist left working class champions taking no corrupting big money, uh, taking only small dollar donations, and representing the people, fighting for what the polls show they want. The people want Medicare for all. The people want free college. According to some polls, Medicare for all is not only the majority of the country, 70%, it's also the majority of Republicans now. Free college! There's a poll that had free college, not just the majority of the country, a majority of Republicans. Living wage, again, another one, not just the majority of the country, a majority of Republican voters. So... You're telling me, if you run on these issues, that everybody likes? No, that's not going to work. What you got to do is you got to go to Wall Street, and you got to go to the military-industrial complex, and then you got to take their corrupting money, and then you got to vote for deregulation, which is going to destroy everybody's life the next time that there's an economic crash, and then you got to vote for more endless wars. And this is the way that you're a serious person. There's a, a video clip going around now of Biden back in the 1990s giving a speech he was asked about, hey, where were you during the Vietnam resistance? You were nowhere to be found now, were you? And he was like, me? Bro, listen, I, I, I'm a young man. I was raising my family. I was, uh, I'm not down with all like the hippie t-shirts and whatnot and going out there and protesting. I'm a serious person. You're a serious person. So in other words, the people who were protesting uh, in uh, a war that led to the death of over a million people in Vietnam, an offensive war on landless peasants, where we did war crime after war crime after war crime, with napalm and Agent Orange, burned down villages. The people who were fighting that 
we're not the serious people. You're the serious person because you're callous and you don't give a fuck about the death and destruction that's happening overseas with your money and in your name. So you're the serious person as you casually sit around while your government slaughters hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. You're the serious one. The people fighting that are not serious. This is the same vibe I'm getting from this. Like, <laughs> please, I'm a serious person. So I like outraise my opponent using corporate money by 10 to one. And then I lose in an embarrassing fashion. Every article, by the way, before Joe Crowley lost, Joe Crowley, basically a shoe in for re-election. Sure, there's a 28-year-old incumbent, 28-year-old insurgent candidate trying to tattoo. She's making a run, but yeah, it's going to be, it's all but guaranteed. That's what all the articles said. On the night Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez won, Joy Reid of MSNBC was like, ha, 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 everybody in the progressive world is doing the crash course on who this person is now. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? We had her on the show when she was campaigning, one of very few to do that. Jimmy Dore had her on his show, one of the very few to do that. She was on TYT repeatedly. Progressive new media, we all knew who she was. Lefties who are online knew who she was and were crystal clear about it. You're supposed to be the representative of what's supposed to be the left network. (laughs) Don't get me started on how funny that is. And you had to do a crash course on her victory the day she won? You're pathetic. This is embarrassing, man. It's so embarrassing. And Joe Crowley, for him to go out there and be like, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Just a dude who's been in Washington, D.C. forever, who's raised a tremendous amount of corporate money, who sold out repeatedly, who outraised his opponent 10 to 1, and still got my ass handed to me on a silver platter because of the power of their ideas. Nothing to see here, bro. Move right along. The reality is this. There can be another dozen AOCs in the next election. You got to go watch the Netflix movie, Knock Down the House. It's a documentary on, this, on specific Justice Democratic campaigns. AOC, Paula Jean Swearingen, Cori Bush, Amy Valella, they follow all of them. And it's an incredibly powerful documentary because we know how it ends. We know that AOC wins and the rest of them lose. Now, it shows you the nature of the beast and that everything is against you. But it also shows you if you fight hard enough, if you work hard enough, if you don't stop, if you're incredibly persistent, eventually you will win. Because the power, guys, is in the work. The power is in the organizing. The power is keep moving, man. Keep moving. Just keep showing up. That's it. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. Keep showing up. They can't deny you if you keep showing up. These pampered little Wall Street pricks with a zillion dollars in the bank who can't wait to leave Washington and immediately become lobbyists, and that's exactly what Joe Crowley did, by the way. You What, you think they're like fucking unbeatable? No, they're paper tigers, dude. The power of their ideas are this. Bupkis. Nothing. He doesn't believe in anything. So, of course, you could beat him if you care about the issues and you fight and you always show up and, you know, you don't stop. So that's what we need to do moving forward. We need to learn that he's exactly wrong. There is every lesson to draw from his loss and AOC's victory. Now, let's take that lesson and move forward because we need to repeat that over and over and over and over until we get a Congress that's actually representative of the people. Instead of having like anywhere from five to maybe a dozen Congress people who do the right thing, instead of having like two senators 
who do the right thing, let's make it a majority. It'll take time, it'll take effort, it'll take work, but it's doable. Okay. Here we go. President Trump. Poll numbers. Check it out. So President Trump is incredibly vulnerable right now, electorally. This really is something. So ABC News has the following. 55% of Americans say they definitely would not consider voting for President Trump in 2020, according to a new ABC and Washington Post poll. 55%. I'll repeat that, would not consider voting for Trump. So that means at best he's got 45% of the country. That's at best, dude. That's at best. Now, I have not seen the methodology for this poll. Is it possible they're doing some tricky nonsense like they did with uh, in all the Biden-Bernie polls where they oversample way older voters and then they're like, look at that, Biden's crushing him. Yeah, he's crushing him because you ignored the vast majority, the base of Bernie Sanders' support, which is young people. So that's not surprising. It's like you were fishing for the answer you wanted, and you got it. And that's exactly what this is. It's possible that that's what this is. I don't know. But there's some other polling data, which I think is honestly even, is even worse for him. So Ryan Strzok says the following, average presidential approval ratings through this point in term via ABC um, and Washington Post and Gallup polling. So take a look at this. Kennedy was 73% um, favored this time in office, at this point in his administration. W. Bush, 71%. H.W. Bush, 70%. Johnson, 69%. Eisenhower, 67%. Nixon, 58%. Truman, 56%. Obama, 55%. Reagan, 55%. Carter, 52%. Clinton, 51%. Ford, 47%. Donald Trump has a 38% approval rating. Dude, he's more than 10 points behind the next guy in the modern era. And that's 10 points behind somebody who also wasn't popular and wasn't above water. Bro, what? Dog, what? So he is, he is super vulnerable, man incredibly vulnerable. Now, some would argue, well, that means that you can throw any Democrat at him and that'll, that'll, that's it. It's possible that that's it, but I don't want to take chances, dude. I know that if it's somebody like Kamala Harris or Cory Booker, or, uh, Booty Judge or uh, Biden, that it's likely to be a closer race than if it is Bernie Sanders. If it's Bernie Sanders, I don't, I don't even think it's close. I think he crushes him in the popular vote. I think he crushes him in the electoral college. I think he gets over 300 electoral votes. Listen, I'm telling you, man. I'm fucking telling you. If it's Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, it's over before it starts. I don't even care. You know, people say, well, what about the economy? I don't even think that. Even if the economy is still booming, I still think Bernie Sanders beats Donald Trump. Um, so why not go with the safe thing? Why not go with the thing that we know? 
will win. However, having said that, as of right now, he's literally vulnerable against all the candidates. Um, but I think the problem is when you actually get to debating and when you actually get to campaigning, he is, Trump is so underrated in those ways. I think he's actually a very good debater and his tactics work, even though he's a dumbass. And I think, he, um, I think he's an even better campaigner because he loves doing these rallies. He fucking, dude, he lives for those rallies and those rally goers live for him. Now that's a shrinking segment of society, but at a certain number, they just won't abandon him. We're getting close to that bottom right now, by the way. If he has a 38% approval rating, maybe it's 35% of the country that would never abandon him under any circumstance. Um, but I think he's good at those things, and I think many of the centrist Democrats are bad at those things. So, and also, I genuinely believe that if Democrats go down the path of impeachment, his numbers bounce back up. I really believe that. Because if they go down the path of impeachment, all the fence-sitters are forced to, to pick a side. And I think that the default setting is, just wait to the next election. Just wait to the next election because he, there's no evidence of collusion in the Mueller report. You can say he obstructed, but then it, the question arises, it's obstruction, but he's obstructing when there was no original crime of collusion. So it's not really that, it's not as bad as obstruction if there was collusion. So it's like, what are we doing here? And I think a lot of independence in that circumstance, more side with Trump. And also there's historical reasons to believe actual impeachment would help Trump because that's what happened with Bill Clinton. They went after Bill Clinton, they went to impeach him, and his approval rating shot up because people kind of went, eh, kind of fuck off, like no. So we lied about a blowjob. He perjured himself under oath. And people were just like, yeah, don't really care. He lied about a question that shouldn't have been asked in the first place, so get over it and move on. I think that the reaction would be similar if the Democrats went to impeach over obstruction. I think the reaction would be like, well, I mean, if he obstructed, but there was no collusion, no evidence of collusion, kind of fuck off and let's just get to the next election. So that's my guess. Um, we'll see what happens. It looks like the Democrats are not going to go down the path of impeachment, which I actually think is a good thing. Sucks all the air out of the room and takes, um, you know, the focus away from the things we should be talking about, you know, which are plethora of things. Emoluments Clause, Yemen, Medicare for All, uh, living wage, all the policy issues. So, but these numbers are stunning. And he is super unpopular right now and incredibly vulnerable. All the more reason to get Bernie to that general election so that we can all watch the beauty unfold in front of us. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, I got um, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, I think I got like five stories left. Um, I'll give you a little preview. I have Chase Bank, Ben Shapiro, um, a Donald Trump voter who flipped for Bernie. I got an awesome video about that. And... Trump is really in trouble over emoluments, and that's an interesting story. And I'm going to unfortunately have to go after Alyssa Milano. <laughs> I got nothing against her, but she said something that really was not good uh, for politics. So we'll get to that. We'll cover all that and more. Stay right there, bitch. We will be right back.
bitch. Sorry, y'all. <clears throat> okay. Oh, let's uh, make fun of Chase Bank for being incredibly out of touch. You know, Mother Nature is playing a, a cruel, cruel joke on me. I uh, literally, every day in the past, like, two weeks that I, I've been doing the show, um, the weather has been beautiful. But then every time that I don't, that I, I don't have the show, the weather is shitty. So, like, if, if there's no show and I, I want to go outside and I want to, you know, get a little bit of fresh air, a little bit of exercise in, maybe play some golf. It's always like raining and disgusting and cold. And and then every time I'm doing the show, it's like a beautiful 65 degrees outside, sun shining, just like a slight breeze. And it's just like heaven on earth. I don't know why Mother Nature is doing this to me. But I must say, I'm pretty pissed off at, at her. All right, Chase Bank, here we go. So Chase Bank um, tweeted the following the other day. You, why is my balance so low? Bank account, make coffee at home. Bank account, eat the food that's already in the fridge. Bank account, you don't need a cab, it's only three blocks. You, I guess we'll never know. Bank account, seriously? Hashtag Monday Motivation. J.P. Morgan Chase, J.P. Morgan, which is the parent company of Chase, they received over $25 billion in taxpayer money as part of uh, the government bailout in 2008 during the subprime mortgage crisis and the Great Recession. They were partly responsible for tanking the world economy. $25 billion of your money. And now, over 10 years later, they're like tweeting pithy things about how, come on, bro, you got to be fiscally responsible and shit. Like, what's wrong with you, man? Like, what's wrong? Oh, oh, why is your bank account uh, so low? Well, I don't know. Maybe don't get the Starbucks coffee, bitch. Or how about, you know, eat the food that's already in the fridge and don't eat out. And don't take a cab, just walk to the place. I mean, you fucking... Come on, man, be fiscally responsible. What's wrong with you? The internet had a field day with this shit. And they... And good. Good. Fuck Chase. I hate these big banks, man. I hate them so much. God damn it, I hate them. Like, there... There's so much political corruption that leads to... Like, they donate to... Uh, candidates, and then when they get elected, those candidates will, you know, basically push for legislation that deregulates these banks and gets rid of the rules, and then when they get rid of the rules, the banks do all these kinds of casino capitalist bets that eventually blow up, and then when they blow up, we got to go bail them out, and it's just, it's a vicious cycle, and they have no personal responsibility. They're immensely corrupt, and they're immensely greedy. And uh, get this, in January, J.P. Morgan's board raised Jamie Dimon's salary, that's the CEO, to more than $31 million. 
so they're lecturing like working people. Meanwhile, their uh, their shitty CEO is running out the back door with thirty one million dollars. And let's just keep it real. What they're doing here is is called poor shaming. They're poor shaming people. There's a one of the fundamental differences. I forgot where I read this, but it it was really poignant and it was really wise. One of the fundamental differences between uh, people on the far right and everybody else, not just people on the left, but like everybody else, even like center right people, moderate people, and lefties. Regular people don't view poverty as like 100% your fault. There's a lot that goes into it. There's a lot of like the momentum of this already giant and corrupt system just chugging along. And there's generational poverty. And if you don't have the connections, you're not born in the right place at the right time to the right family. It really is, in many respects, happenstance. Now, is it possible uh, in fringe cases where, you know, you could rise up out of the worst of the worst scenarios? Sure. But that's the exception that proves the rule. The majority don't. And it's not because of a lack of effort. Oftentimes, the effort doesn't get you too far. I mean, you can still work a full-time job in America and not make enough money to survive. That's, we have a whole category of people, millions of people called working poor in this country. That's why this tweet is so obnoxious. It's because the far right views poverty as a moral failing on your part 100% of the time. That's what they think it is. Poverty is a moral failing on your part 100% of the time. Now, it doesn't matter if you say, well, hold on now. I work a full-time job, but I'm still poor. They go, I don't care. It's still a moral failing on your part. Get a different job and get, get rich, make money. Okay, but hold on now. I work two jobs, and I'm working over 70 hours a week, and I'm still poor. I don't care. Get, you know, work your way up the ladder or whatever. Yeah, but that, that argument never made sense because even in a world, like, even in a world where everybody worked as hard as possible, not everybody's going to be able to climb that ladder and get that promotion and make more money. That means some people, no matter how hard they work, are stuck on that bottom rung now, aren't they? So it's almost like we should inherently value all work. And we should make it so that if you work full time, you make a living wage. That's it. There is no ends if or buts. There is no, uh, oh, my God, i got to run to the safety net in order to make ends meet. And even then, it's not necessarily that I'm making ends meet. No, no, no. So I think what the left understands, what moderates understand, and even center-right people understand is that, dude, over 95% of people are trying out here, dog. They're trying. People are trying, man. They're doing their thing. They're going about their business. They're trying. They're trying for themselves. They're trying for their family. They're doing the best that they possibly can. And perhaps... The nature of the system is just a little fucked up, and it's not a meritocracy. And it's not like the harder you work, the further you go. So maybe poverty is not at all a reflection on your moral character. Maybe poverty has a lot more to do with um, outside forces, uh, the momentum of a giant system, luck. (laughs) So there's just so much more that goes into it. And that, like, didactic, naive view of, well, it's just like a moral failing on your part. Oh, well, just don't get the fucking coffee and eat the food that's already in the fridge. And ugh. No, that's not the, the cure-all. That's not the fix. 
And as some assholes in our society who sit on their ass all day have car elevators like Mitt Romney, dude's money makes money from investments. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. In, in a country where some people have car elevators, don't you dare try to shame somebody for getting a coffee. Oh, your bank, your bank account balance is too low. Why don't you just, like, spend no money at all and work nonstop, and then maybe 15 years from now, maybe then you get a coffee? Or how about you fuck off and return that $25 billion bailout that you got? Bitch. Poverty is not a moral failing. That's the important point here. And people on the far right simply do not agree with that. And that is one of the main reasons why you see that they're, like, hostile to all programs that try to give people equal opportunity and give people a shot at success and comfort. Ben Shapiro, time to make fun of him yet again, yet again. Okay, so here we go again. I don't want to talk about this weasley little prick, but nonetheless, we're moving forward. Ben Shapiro went after Ilhan Omar for the 14,912th time um, in the most slimy, grotesque, underhanded way possible. He did it while discussing uh, the recent white supremacist terror attack on a synagogue in California. Let's see what he said. As I said before, if you are blind to anti-Semitism from one particular side of the aisle because it favors your political position, you are not in the fight against anti-Semitism. You are part of the problem. If anti-Semitism is just another political club, he wields it. If Ilhan Omar is given the credibility to speak out against anti-Semitism while routinely engaging in anti-Semitism. She has a lot of the same opinions about Jews that the white supremacist had in that manifesto. In that manifesto, the, base, the, the, white, the, the shooter basically says, effectively says about Jews, that they control the world media, that they control the way money runs, that they control opinion about Israel. Am I going to take her for, am, am I going to take her at her word that she hates anti-Semitism? Again, I'm not going to equate her with the shooter because I don't think they're the same. I think that people who commit violence are not the same as people who say evil things. But am I going to take her condemnation of anti-Semitism seriously? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. I'm not going to take the condemnation from the New York Times seriously, and I'm not going to take it seriously from a press that covers it for the New York Times. Either call it all out, or I'm not going to believe you. I love this so much. Uh, ben Shapiro, or as I call him, Logic Man, he thinks he's so smart, and he thinks, me, bro, I'm all about logic and stuff. Facts, reason, rationality, that's me. That's me. Okay, well, uh, try this one for size dipshit. What you just did is a logical fallacy. You made it a non-falsifiable claim. So, in other words, Ilhan Omar's an anti-Semite. That's what you claim. Okay, well, what if she comes out and says, no, I don't agree with anti-Semitism. I think anti-Semitism is terrible. I condemn anti-Semitism. Um, and I love working with my Jewish brothers and sisters, and I'm against all forms of bigotry. What if she says that? Well, nope, not buying it. Whoa, 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 what? So if she doesn't come out and condemn anti-Semitism and say it's bad, well, you're an anti-Semite. If she does come out and condemn anti-Semitism and says it's bad, you're still an anti-Semite. <laughs> 
That's a non-falsifiable claim, no matter what. So in other words, he believes it. it's an axiom. It's true because it's true. It's a tautology. It's true because it's true. I don't, evidence, irrelevant. Reason, logic, irrelevant. It's just, I believe it, and it's like a religious belief. It's like a religious belief. That's what it is. He's saying, my belief that Ilhan Omar is an anti-Semite is a religious belief. doesn't matter what she says. doesn't matter what she does. I've already decided it. It's over. Now, I need, now do a little thought experiment for me here. Do a little thought exercise. Take out anti-Semitic, put in the word racist. What would Ben Shapiro's reaction be? Um, he said, you're part of the problem if you don't see anti-Semitism like on both sides of the aisle. You're part of the problem if you don't see anti-Semitism there. What if somebody said, you're part of the problem if you don't see racism on both sides of the aisle. You're part of the problem if you don't see racism everywhere. What if that Trump voter in the Rust Belt comes out and says, no, I'm not racist. I'm not racist. I voted for Obama. You know, the reason I voted for Trump is because he was saying we're going to keep our jobs here. I'm not racist. What, would Ben Shapiro say, uh, no, you are racist? Is that what he would say? No, I think you're racist. And if you, don't see, if you don't see this everywhere and you're not calling it out, save it. I don't want to hear it. So you're either with us or against us. Either you see anti-Semitism everywhere, and where I say it is, you agree. Or if you disagree on some of my claims of anti-Semitism against people, well, you're part of the problem and maybe you're an anti-Semite too. If you take out anti-Semitism and put in racism, he immediately flips his entire position on this. Because his whole thing, and he's lectured the left about this before. He's like... <laughs> Come on, the left with your fucking fake cries of bigotry, your false cries of bigotry. Maybe stop calling, you know, everybody you disagree with a bigot and a xenophobe and a racist. And then maybe, you know, grow up a little bit and learn to make actual arguments. That's what he says when it's racism, when it's anti-Semitism. You're an anti-Semite and you're an anti-Semite and you're an anti-Semite. And oh, did you come out and condemn anti-Semitism? Not buying it. You're still an anti-Semite. If you don't say anything, you're an anti-Semite. If you do come out and say something, you're still an anti-Semite. Dude, you're an idiot. Ben, you're a jackass. You're a fucking idiot. You're not smart. You think you're smart, you're not smart. You're really not. You talk really fast. And people, ooh, he's talking fast. He must be making sense. No, he repackages all the dumbest fucking arguments imaginable, which are the old movement conservative arguments. In other words, he's more philosophically aligned with George W. Bush and Ted Cruz than any other kind of politician in the country. George W. Bush and Ted Cruz. That's who he philosophically agrees with. I rest my case. Need I say any more? Listen, it is disgusting to try to equate Ilhan Omar with a white supremacist terrorist. This dude who did the attack tried to attack a mosque a week before. You think he was sitting around like... I sure like Ilhan Omar and agree with Ilhan Omar. And even the argument that, well, no, they still have some connecting parts of their ideology. Not true at all. Ilhan Omar was concerned about the influence of money in politics, including from AIPAC, which is the right-wing Israel lobby. She says, hey, AIPAC buys politicians. Politicians, politicians do the bidding of AIPAC and end up supporting insane pieces of legislation, like giving Netanyahu billions of dollars worth of weapons as he massacres innocent people in Gaza. So, no, I'm not going to sit back and act like that's okay. I'm against that. And it's not anti-Semitic to call it out. It's reasonable to call it out. That's a crazy situation. Of course we should call it out. You should call out the Israeli government. You should call them out. And she does that in the media. Oh, my God, you're an anti-Semite. You're an, oh, it's all about the Benjamins. Are you trying to say that Jews control the entire world with their money? 
Actually, no, what I'm trying to say is APAC is a, literally a, a lobbying group, and they've bought politicians to do their bidding like the Saudi lobby does, and she's called out the Saudi lobby before. I still think you're an anti-Semite. Oh, Jesus Christ. Even the argument of, oh, my God, she said Israel hypnotized the world. You know when she said that, right? During the fucking slaughter of innocent women and children in Gaza in 2014. That's when she said it. She said it then. As Netanyahu was fucking bombing hospitals and the only power plant in Gaza and and UN headquarters. That's when she said it. And guess what? Half the fucking media coverage in the U.S. was acting like Israel was doing nothing wrong. Oh, what do you want them to do? I mean, obviously they have to bomb women and children and kill 80% civilians because of reasons and stuff and things. And so when she says, God damn, it's like they hypnotized the world, yes, it is true that that language is part of an old anti-Semitic trope. But this is why context is so important, because she's saying it as Netanyahu and the Likud government are slaughtering innocent women and children. What's she supposed to do, not call it out? Now, I get it. If you want to say that language was a little too close to that, fine. But don't pretend like the context is irrelevant, because in every other situation, you argue context is relevant. When it comes to race, you correctly argue context is relevant. Don't just call everybody you disagree with racist. What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? But in the case of anti-Semitism, you're an anti-Semite, you're an anti-Semite, you're an anti-Semite. Everybody's an anti-Semite. Oh, Jesus. Oh, did I say, I said Jesus. I must be an anti-Semite now. Bringing up Jesus in the context of talking about Jewish folks. Give it a rest, Ben. You're such a hack. It's so obvious. Your stick is petering out, and you're on borrowed time, my dude. Okay, next. One of my favorite stories of the day. So this next clip is absolutely incredible. You're going to listen to a Donald Trump voter flip for Bernie Sanders on live TV on C-SPAN. election, I trusted Trump. I thought he was going to throw a monkey wrench into the elite establishment and make America great again. And uh, I'm just a regular guy. I'm in sales. And I thought that the whole economy would change across the spectrum. Well, here we are four years later. And I got to say, he lied. Uh, I'm no better off. My friends who are regular Workers are no better off. The Midwest, the Electoral College, no better off. And so this year, if I don't have someone to challenge him on our side, I'm voting for Bernie. I'm voting for Bernie because he makes the most sense. By the way, I'm paying $387 for a bottle of diabetic medicine. So there are a lot of issues I like uh, with Bernie, and uh, he just he. It just makes more sense. Health care for, for you, your top issue? I'm sorry? Is, is oh, health, yeah. Absolutely. Health care is I think health care is a top issue for what we call human beings, <laughs> because without our health, we're dead, yeah. you see. So health, health has to be the top issue for everyone, regardless of party. For the last 40 years, uh, there 
have been six consecutive presidents that have favored the rich, rich companies, and uh, I'm, I'm a what you call an old-fashioned re- Republican. That's why I voted for Trump because he promised the Midwest is going to regain what it once had. To ask anyone in the Midwest, ask people in the middle country, are they better off? The answer is hell no. And Bernie Sanders is the only person running that's for actual people. Anytime anybody in the media tries to make the argument that, well, electability is what's so important, just understand, number one, that's a made-up concept that the establishment trots out to bolster their preferred candidates the entire time, because they always argue it's the centrists and the corporatists who are the most electable. We need to care about electability. Your response to that needs to be, well, actually, yes, electability is, is important, but Bernie Sanders is the most electable. <laughs> You want to know how I know that? All of the polling data. It's Bernie who's up like a dozen points on Trump in, in the Rust Belt across the board. He has the biggest lead on Trump. So I do think electability is important, but Bernie's the most electable. And also, never let the electability thing gaslight you into making up your own mind about who you support. Because if that's all, like if, the, if you buy into that premise that that's all that matters, then what you're saying is beating Trump is it. That's the end-all, be-all. Well, no. What if your way of beating Trump is to pick somebody who agrees with him on 80% of the issues? Well, then it's really not like, wow, congratulations. Now there's, uh, you know, we're still doing 80% of what Trump wants done, so you didn't really defeat Trump in the sense that you defeated his policies. You kind of agree with his policies. So, like, I think that's so important that you don't let them gaslight you with this idea of electability Pick who fits your ideology, your policy preferences the most. But even if we buy into that framework of electability is important, okay, Bernie's leading in terms of electability. He's doing best in the specific places he needs to do well in order to beat Trump. And now this is another example. We covered the Fox News town hall. Bernie Sanders crushed on the issue of trade and uh, on the issue of the destruction of you know, factory uh, towns and cities across uh, this country, particularly in the Rust Belt. Um, But this is an example of literally a Trump voter flipping for Bernie on TV, live. Can't beat that, man. See, the thing that's great about the populist left candidates like Bernie is that they hold the Democratic base because they're populist left and they're fighting for all of the Democratic base issues. Medicare for all, free college, living wage, and the drug war, so on and so forth. But like... Those ideas that hold the Democratic base are also the ideas that chip away at center-right voters and moderate voters. Because, again, the polls show 51% of Republicans want Medicare for all. The polls show a majority of Republicans are fine with raising the minimum wage. So if you're, a, if you're for, like this dude said at the end, if you're for actual people, they sense it, and they're going to vote for you. And so this is just the beginning, man. This is just the beginning. Bernie holds the base while chipping away at the former Trump voters who are not bigoted. Bernie's not going to get the people who are bigoted and are voting because they're bigoted. He's not going to get the David Dukes. He's not going to get the Richard Spencers. Their whole reason for supporting Trump was he wants to ban all Muslims from coming into the country. He said that, you know, the Mexicans coming here are criminals and rapists, and he assumes some are good people. He wants to build a wall. If for the segment of the pro-Trump people who were for him because of his primitive social issues, beliefs, 
They're not going anywhere. They're going to stick with Trump. But everybody else, everybody else is going to say, oh, well, obviously Bernie. He's actually anti-establishment. He's actually fighting for working people. And he's actually going to do right by Americans. So it's a no-brainer. He's going to crush him if he gets to the general. I'm telling you, man, Bernie is going to crush Trump. Don't take it from me. Take it from this random C-SPAN caller. All right, a monument, bitch. Time to discuss a monument. Time to discuss a monument. Oh, did I fuck up? Yeah, I fucked up. I'm a jackass. Um. <clears throat> All right, give me a second. I got to pull up the proper graphic. But once we get to it, it's a Fortune article that lays out how Donald Trump just got handed a big plate of dicks on the issue of emoluments. Okay, here we go. So we have uh, another positive development on the corruption issue and the various avenues uh, by which people are going after Donald Trump for being massively corrupt. Here's what Fortune says. Trump's narrow definition of emoluments rejected by judge. President Donald Trump's narrow definition of an emolument failed to win him an escape from a lawsuit by almost 200 congressional Democrats who claim the president is violating the Constitution by doing business with foreign governments. U.S. District Judge Emmett Sullivan on Tuesday denied a Justice Department request to dismiss the lawsuit filed in 2017 by Connecticut Senator Richard Blumenthal and other members of the House and Senate who claim Trump is violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. The judge's ruling would allow the Democrats to start seeking financial records from the Trump Organization in a pretrial exchange of information. The Justice Department can try to block that appealing that by appealing the ruling. Trump is already fighting congressional subpoenas for his tax information in court and has vowed to fight, quote, all subpoenas. Sullivan, in September, ruled the Democrats have legal standing to pursue their claim and held off deciding on the merits. Tuesday's 48-page decision gives a detailed explanation for ruling against the president and siding with the Democrats in a fight they say is crucial for battling corruption. Trump and the Democrats have clashed over what the once little-known word emoluments meant at the time the Founding Fathers wrote the Constitution, with Democrats using a broad definition to cover profit from Trump's businesses and Trump seeking a narrow meaning. Sullivan said the Democrats had the more convincing argument. Trump's definition disregards the ordinary meaning of the term as set forth in the vast majority of founding-era dictionaries. Sullivan said in his ruling... Uh, the judge also said Trump's definition is inconsistent with the text, structure, historical interpretation, adoption, and purpose of the clause, and is contrary to executive branch practice over the course of many years. Democrats argued the word is broadly defined, quote, as any profit, gain, or advantage. The president countered that an emolument would be 
For example, a payment from a foreign government for an official action or a salary from a foreign power. The clause says that certain federal officials, including uh, the president, can accept an emolument from any king, prince, or foreign state without, quote, the consent of the Congress. The congressional Democrats are seeking an order compelling Trump to notify Congress when he's offered an emolument, giving them the opinion to vote on whether he can accept it. Blumenthal has called the emoluments clause the Constitution's premier anti-corruption provision. Trump said he stepped down from running his $3 billion empire but retained his ownership interests, a decision the Democrats say violates the foreign emoluments clause because he's getting payments from foreign governments without congressional approval. Blumenthal called the judge's earlier September ruling a, quote, triumph for the rule of law. While the Democrats claim they're being denied the right to vote on the benefits, attorneys for the president say the matter should be resolved in Congress, not in court. Okay, so I'm actually stricter on this than um, the Democrats and even than the Constitution lays out. Apparently under the Constitution, when it comes to emoluments, the Congress has the ability to vote on whether or not the president can accept it. So in other words, Saudi Arabia is staying at Trump's D.C. hotel and they're spending money there. They're doing it on purpose. It's a form of bribery. But um, Congress is going get, to get to step in and say, well, hold on now we can vote this up or down. So in other words, if we say it's okay for you to accept money from the Saudi government, it's okay. If we say it's not okay, we're going to say it's, it's not okay and we'll vote it down and you can't accept that money. I'm much more hardline on this. No, you, no way the president should have sprawling business interests where he can accept payment from foreign governments. I don't even want the president to have sprawling business interests where he accepts money from corporations or lobbyists. Basically, you should be forced to get rid of all ownership and all investment as president. Because of course it's going to be a conflict of interest. If fucking some Wall Street hedge fund asshole goes to one of your businesses and dumps like, he writes a check for 500 grand for your business, what the fuck do you think that person's going to do? They're going to take that phone call from that hedge funder and say, what can I do for you? What do you need? Oh, you need me to, you know, do a certain provision of deregulation that gets uh, the government off your ass and allows you to take more risks? I'm, I'm all over it, bro. If somebody from the military-industrial complex dumps a $500,000 check at a president's business, what do you think is going to happen? Oh, would you look at that? Raytheon or Boeing just got another no-bid contract, and we're handing billions of dollars over to them for them to make some fucking, you know, shitty widget. I mean, that's, that's what happens in reality. In reality, human beings are human beings, and uh, this is, by very nature of the way the system functions, it's corrupting. So... I think this is good that it's going through court, and if I'm not mistaken, there are multiple, like two or three different emoluments cases going through court. I hope all of them rule against Trump, and I also hope there are actual penalties, and it's not just like, oh, we'll vote on it as to whether or not you can, you can accept the money, because this is setting a terrible precedent. If you really can have a president accept money from foreign governments, then yeah, there's a good argument that they're not primarily working for us. They're working for whoever the fuck's paying them. And when you look at, like, you know, over $100 billion weapons deal going to Saudi Arabia, multi-billion dollar weapons deal going to Israel, like, a lot of that, yes, is because of the lobbying efforts of those countries. So it's deep, deep, deep corruption, but it's built into the system so people don't bat an eyelash. All the fucking idiot reporters uh, in Washington, D.C., the establishment reporters, they're like, well, this is just how it works. I don't know. Are you kidding me? That's just how, no, that's not just how it works. Our fucking country is crumbling, and we're giving $100 billion worth of weapons to fucking Saudi Arabia as they do a genocide in Yemen, and they just killed 37 protesters the other day? What a joke. So this needs to stop, and this is a, I think it's a way more serious scandal 
than Russiagate is. And I think it's good to have the focus on that because there's a better principled argument, even if you wanted to do impeachment, which I don't think is politically wise, but even if you wanted to do that, emoluments is a much better argument than fucking maybe obstruction over collusion that didn't happen. And that's just my personal opinion on it, but I just think it's so much more of a real issue and it gets to the core of what people hate about our politics, about how we don't think our politicians are working for us. You want to know why we think that? Because they're not working for us. And whether it's Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton with their shitty fucking Clinton Foundation and Bill giving speeches all over the world as Hillary's doling out fucking contracts, weapons contracts as she's Secretary of State to all these repressive governments, that's fucking corruption. It's also corruption when Trump approves these weapons deals for Saudi as he's taking money at his goddamn hotel, among the many other ways. Jared Kushner got millions of dollars from Israel, and then Trump turns around and does all these favors for Israel. So... I think that that's a way more serious issue, and I'm happy that the courts, to this point, have ruled with Democrats. Okay, now let's go to Alyssa Milano. So Alyssa Milano is uh, has become a kind of prominent... Democrat, and she's been being involved in various movements recently. Well, she went on MSNBC, and she gave her opinion on the upcoming presidential election. And she said something that's pretty problematic. Let's take a look, and then I'll discuss. Uh, and still, there are many progressives, or some progressives, who say this is not enough. Is that a mistake? Are they not focused on the overall mission for all Democrats, which is to defeat Donald Trump? Earlier today, Michael Steele said Democrats have a choice. You want to be woke or you want to win? Do you agree with him? I think it's a great point. I think, look, there's nobody in the world that wants progressive policy to be set in place more than I do. But this primary, to me, is not about policy. It's about beating Trump, period. That's it. End of story. We need to nominate someone that is going to beat Trump. Um, and bring honesty and integrity and, and dignity and truth back to the United States of America, empathy, compassion, all these things that I want to teach my, my children growing up in this great country. We need someone that's going to represent that to the best of their ability and, and, um, and fight Trump. The way to defeat Trump is to focus on policy. 100%. 100%. Look at what happened with Hillary Clinton in 2016. She did exactly what you're saying. Exactly what Alyssa Milano laid out here, that was the Hillary Clinton campaign strategy. Their strategy was, listen, this dude speaks for himself. Look at him. He's a buffoon. He's a reality star host. He's a virulent bigot. Give him enough rope. Let him hang himself. What will we do? Very simple. I'm going to go around the country. My whole argument is going to be, you want to keep things somewhat normal? You want to keep your head above water? Uh, I'll, I'll say I represent the status quo. America is already great. He's a crazy person that you should never even consider voting for. And I'll throw some platitudes and some cliches at you, and then you should vote for me. So we need to break down the barriers. And I think we are stronger together. And I'm in favor of good things and against bad things. Like this was the whole the whole point of her campaign was that, was what you just described, Alyssa Milano. And she lost. You want to know why? People are sick of the status quo. 
They hate it so much they rolled the dice on a reality star buffoon. They'd rather have the establishment busted up than the establishment maintained. So ultimately, if you focus on policy, that means you're focusing on substantively improving people's lives. If people get that you're focusing on substantively improving their lives, they will vote for you. This is why Bernie Sanders crushes Trump in all the polls, way more than Hillary ever did. Hillary was up two, three points on Trump. Bernie's up like 12 points. In the swing, in the swing states, for the most important states, in, in the Rust Belt, most important part, Bernie is up like a dozen points on Trump. If you really want to go with like, oh, whoa, 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 all I care about is beating Trump. Well, then Bernie's 100% your candidate, 100%, not even close, 100% your candidate. But see, what they do is they lazily believe like it's actually anybody but Bernie is the safe candidate. But they're just, you know, empirically wrong about that. And then the final point I want to make is this. She said, listen, it's all, it's not about policy. It's all about defeating Trump. Well, again, policy is the way you defeat Trump. Okay. But to have that as like the centerpiece of your, like, just got to get rid of this guy. My response to that is, well, what about a situation where a Democrat is telling you, I'm going to do many of Donald Trump's cornerstone ideas. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a lot of the things Trump is doing right now. I'm going to continue to do that. Case in point, Joe Biden yesterday came out and said he agrees with what Trump and John Bolton and the neocons are doing in Venezuela, where they're backing an illegal regime change coup. So Biden comes out and says, yeah, I agree. So is your, is your approach just, I want to defeat Trump, that's it? Or is it more like my approach, which is, I want to defeat Trump and his policy ideas. So I want him out of there, and I want all the shitty ideas, too. So I don't want to do any more regime change wars. I want to stop that. So all the Democrats who are for regime change wars, they're done. They're out of the equation. All the Democrats who voted, for example, to give Donald Trump more NSA spying powers, I don't want any Democrat who's going to do that in there. Done with that. Uh, you know, a lot of the Democrats supported Donald Trump's massive increase in military spending. I don't want a Democrat who's going to do that. Sorry, Elizabeth Warren. You just got bumped down a few spots on the list as a result of that. And the list goes on and on. Listen, it's about defeating Trump, but also defeating his policy ideas. And with the centrist Democrats, you get people who say, yeah, on many of the policy ideas, I disagree with him. But on some very crucial, important ones, I'm kind of with him, like Wall Street deregulation, for example. Well, that's a no, no way. Beto, for example, was with Trump on Wall Street deregulation. So I would argue the election is about policy because that is how you defeat Trump. But the important thing is not just defeating Trump, it's also defeating all of the horrendous ideas. And what I would say to Alyssa Milano is this. I'm not big on this whole, because it's always used in an identity politics kind of way where it's like, check your privilege. I mean, check your privilege to Alyssa Milano in an economic sense. You're comfortable. You got money in the bank. Okay? You can afford to go out there and basically say, like, it's just about defeating this guy. Well, listen, to somebody who's been screwed by the status quo, not just under Donald Trump, but on, under the president's prior to Donald Trump, their entire lives, the status quo has been screwing them. It's not enough to just say, got to get rid of this guy, and that's it. That's not enough. If you plant the flag and, and declare victory after Donald Trump is defeated, and that's it, your analysis sucks, and you're a partisan hack. So don't be a partisan hack. Care about the issues. Care about human beings. Care about substance. Care about materially improving lives. And then that'll lead you to the obvious choice, which is Bernie Sanders.
Okay, here we go. Joe Biden. Final story of the Dizay. If I can find the video. Got it. So a pretty damning video of Joe Biden has resurfaced. Uh, This is incredible. If you want to see what Joe Biden's heart really is, the one thing I'll give him credit for is he has his moments of raw honesty. Like sometimes he plays politics and he tries to, you know, he's disingenuous as fuck. But every now and then he'll just slip, let something slip that you're like, oh, shit. He was just keeping it real. (laughs) So here's a great example of that. Watch this. myself to big donors and the reason why I ended up going to small donors is because they said come back when you're 40 well guess what he came back when he was 40 you know the thing is I really don't think if you brought up to Biden why that's a problem I don't think he would get it and I don't think he would care he'd act like no that's just the way it works He would act like you are just, you're so naive for thinking that, like, you know, there's even a possibility to get beyond the whole big donors controlling politics thing. Like, bro, this is just how it works, okay? Like, grow up. Do you mature a little bit? Like, you don't understand this? Like, how silly of you. That's what I think his reaction would be. But the thing is, no, that same scorn that he looks at you with is the scorn that we have for him. Because it's not that we don't get it. We get it. We get that that's how it works and that this is in the DNA of the system right now. But we're also not so blinded by the culture we currently live in that we can't imagine something much better. And so we look at him with this scorn because our reaction is just because it's the way it works now and just because it's in the DNA of the system and just because you're in the swamp doesn't mean it's not a swamp. You know how when you walk into a pet store, you get immediately hit with a, a whiff of like just all, you know, dog shit and fur and just every gross smell at once. And then you notice, stay in the pet store for eight minutes, and then by minute eight, you're like, I don't even smell anything. That's Joe Biden. He's in the swamp. He's in the cesspool. He's deeply corrupt. And he's like, I don't. I mean, sure, it's dunk when I took my first few steps into the cesspool, but now I'm in the cesspool, it doesn't think anymore. Weird. No, it's not weird. That is the way it works. And people who are outside of this deep corruption look at it and go, holy shit, why has nobody fixed this? Are you kidding me? What a joke. What a joke. It's like now with our healthcare system. You know, millions of people who are uninsured, Thirty to 45,000 people dying because they don't have access to basic health care. 
Somebody could easily make the argument, what do you mean? That's how it works. That's the nature of the system. Right, but we're trying to imagine a better one, and we're fighting for a better one, and it is theoretically possible to have a better one. So let's make that the reality. But guys like Joe Biden, wears it on his sleeve, bro? Me? Listen, I tried to prostitute myself, but they said come back when you're 40. So, you know, I came back when I was 40. In other words, he's just a standard politician. He's not revolutionary. He's not a visionary. He's not... He's not in any way, shape, or form ready to really fundamentally change the system in the way that's necessary right now. He is a status quo manager. That's what he is. I was willing to prostitute myself to those big donors, you know. Still am. Is what it is. How the system works? No, no, no. We're fighting and we're making it better. We're actually in the process of it right now, literally. That's why we got no corporate PAC money. That became a pledge that's now taken off everywhere. Even Joe Biden's pretending to be on board with that, but then he goes, he cuts out the middleman. He doesn't go to lobby. It's now he goes right to the CEO. But it's not just a gimmick for us. No uh, corporate PAC money, no billionaire money. And it's all, we're trying to run candidates who raise money only through small dollar donations. That's the purest method. In our corrupt system, that's the purest way you can run. And that's what we're doing. We're running candidates like that. And then they get to fight for the people, unlike you. You're going to fight for Wall Street. You're going to fight for the pharmaceutical industry. You're going to fight for the for-profit health insurance companies. You're going to fight for the defense contractors. You're going to fight for the rich. It's not me saying it. You just said it. I was willing to prostitute myself. I was willing to take the big money and then do their bidding, but they said come back when you're 40. Well, you're well over 40 now, son. So my guess is you have quite a bit of big donor money now, don't you? All right. We done, we done, we done. Love you guys. We will talk to you later. Everybody, enjoy the rest of your beautiful day if you're in New York. I don't know where all of you are, but nonetheless, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Peace out.